From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to have the opportunity again to talk with Barry Burden, political science professor and director of the Elections Research Center here at UW, to discuss the Democratic National Convention, uh, the nomination of Kamala Harris as vice president, and a summer of pandemic protests and campaign politics. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Burden. Oh, thanks for having me back. We can jump right into it with the news of the week. Uh, the DNC. Can you give us some insight into your expectations of how it played out in real time, especially virtually? I, I was really uncertain about how a convention in this environment was going to work like a lot of people. I was curious if they could pull it off doing all scripted videos or things that were produced in a studio uh, or live, but in different locations, you know, being patched in. I thought it was really successful, actually. It was because it was so produced, it was more entertaining to watch. It was more watchable than traditional conventions. There was very little dead time. And, you know, as a viewer, you got a lot of content. There weren't a lot of interludes and lots of applause and things that kind of drag out those events. There was much less uncertainty. And I think some people tune in because they're interested in the hoopla and the pageantry and unexpected moments, um, there weren't even really many technical glitches. I thought it came off really well. Um, you know, one of the things that surprised me most was how much they featured regular people, not so not politicians, not people in public office. I'm not sure they were all regular people, but they were kind of people that, you know, a viewer could identify with from different walks of life. Those folks got a lot of screen time. And I think, you know, one of the images or impressions I get as a viewer now after the fact is just remembering how many farmers and students and parents and teachers they talk to. And I think that helped emphasize Joe Biden's portrayal as kind of an everyman, you know, a sort of caring regular person by featuring all those people. Um, that was something that was really different this year. Yeah, I love that you bring up um, all those people. I, I watched all four nights and seeing all the many many diverse people and all the diverse places that they were calling in from. It was um, it was great entertaining. It was great programming. Did you have a night that you thought went best? Oh, I thought each night had some highlights and some not so highlights. <laughs> you know, the, the, the final night last night was Joe Biden's acceptance speech and he completely nailed it. That was probably one of the best speeches of his lifetime very effectively delivered in a really strange, awkward environment. I mean, to be in a large convention hall or whatever that was, sort of a large ballroom that was empty except for some reporters and maybe a few staff, but to have that kind of intimate conversation with the camera, it just takes a lot of skill. And I thought the content of the speech was also effective. It had imagery and some personal elements to it, but also some policy content about what he wanted to do and on guns and climate change and 
racial injustice and those kinds of things. So uh, that was definitely a highlight. Um, I thought Michelle Obama was right up there as well. Very effective, also very personal and serious and human and just, you know, good, just amazing delivery. Um, not that we should judge these things just on performance, but those were both, I thought, pretty captivating television and, and pretty good at conveying the message. Um, things that did not go so well, there were, I think there were some kind of strange appearances that were maybe obligatory. Um, Michael Bloomberg spoke last night. He's not a great public speaker. He doesn't quite fit in the Democratic Party the way a lot of other public figures do, and it just came off. I think kind of awkward the way he often does in a lot of public settings. Um, you know, and I think John Kasich, the Republican governor from Ohio was brought in as a, on, on, I think the second night showcasing some Republicans who were on board with Biden and who had turned away from Trump. Um, he's also just kind of a rough speaker and he started, you know, with a camera up above him, looking down on him, standing at the divergence of two paths which was supposed to be a metaphor, but also it was just kind of odd. So, but you know, I, I think these things happen in every convention overall. I thought it was really pretty polished and a pretty good mix of policy stuff and kind of personal thematic elements. Not a lot of focus on Donald Trump. It, it was not fixated on him. It was certainly critical of him. And I thought Barack Obama's speech in particular went hard after Trump for how he has behaved in office. But it, it really was focused on, you know, Biden's plan to right the country, to return to normal politics and to deal with some major crises. And I, I thought it came off pretty well. You mentioned the appearance of John Kasich and Mike Bloomberg. And a lot of people, especially on Twitter and in the pundit universe, we're kind of calling out the party and the convention for offering almost like conflicting views of the democratic party or like of who the party wants to include in itself um, and what kinds of things it wants to prioritize. One of the defining features of this convention, it was on the one hand, an appeal to a big tent version of the democratic party by including Kasich and Colin Powell and Bloomberg and others in there, some former Republicans. And in fact, Biden made the pitch last night that he was going to be a, a president of America, not the president of the Democratic Party. So he doesn't want to look, and I think doesn't want to be beholden to the most progressive elements in the party. And yet there were these shout outs to Black Lives Matter, to young people protesting in the streets, to the kind of pressure that the party's been feeling from more progressive elements. Uh, I, I thought the party navigated that about as well as it could. You know, the Democrats got lucky this year that it was not an in-person convention, because if it was, there would have been some discontent on the floor of the convention hall, where especially the Bernie Sanders delegates, I think, would have been pushing hard for a Medicare for all promise in the Democratic platform and would have there would have, would have heard some boos at times for some of the speakers. There was, there was no cheering, there were no balloons, but there were also no booze and no dissension and nobody walking out uh, and no protests outside the hall that got coverage either. So Democrats got to, I think, get away with not having to wrestle with that so much. Um, and even I think Kamala Harris also walks that line of being a, a kind of 
progressive who wants to challenge the orthodoxy. And she's from a, a different generation than Biden, but she's also a cautious politician who was an attorney general and, you know, and now US Senator and is careful. And I think wants to win votes <laughs> and, be, and be in office. Um, you know, the, the thing that also helps the Democrats, I think, in navigating these two elements is that both the most progressive or radical elements in the party and the kind of establishment traditional Democrats are in such agreement about wanting to remove Donald Trump from office. I think they are willing to overlook some differences. Uh, they did it back in the primaries in February by moving to Biden very quickly around Super Tuesday. Uh, it, you know, that is just the overriding desire. It's, you know, our, our surveys are not indicating that Democrats are really enthusiastic about Biden. Republicans are more enthusiastic about Trump, uh, truth be told, but they are so eager to get Trump out of office that I think they're willing to accept imperfections. And Biden was actually portrayed as an imperfect candidate. That language was used. So uh, Democrats are gonna get through this and, and Biden has pitched himself as a transitional candidate to a new kind of democratic party, I think that we'll see emerge in 2024 and beyond. Yeah, it's so interesting, even especially on this podcast, back in like January and February, we were we were almost counting Joe Biden out, but now, and we were we were talking about the possibility of a contested convention, but now, um, it seems as though the convention has gone just absolutely swimmingly. I think so. There was nothing contested about it. You know, there were some things behind the scenes. There were some uh, Sanders delegates who were pushing for a Medicare for all in the platform, and there was a petition going around. It got a lot of signatures actually, but that got squashed in the party meetings and just never got any attention because the convention was produced video. It was not a, a live interactive event. And so you get, you get away with some of that stuff. Um, just, that's, just, that's just the luck of it. Um, but you know, Biden, to his credit, or to his detriment, depending on your perspective, he is a flexible politician and he has followed sentiment within the Democratic Party as it has moved from the 70s when he came into politics till today. He would not still be a public figure if he couldn't be flexible. You know, at one point, he, he was either pro-life or on the pro-life end of the continuum. He's now clearly pro-choice. I think on racial matters, he was more ambivalent about busing and racial integration in the 70s and 80s, and now he's embracing Black Lives Matter. Um, calling out George Floyd by name and those kinds of things. So um, he, has, he has moved, and I think the party will keep moving while he's in office and after he goes, assuming he wins. <laughs> that, that I think his presidency will be transitional, and whether it's Harris or someone else who picks up the mantle, uh, the, the Democratic Party clearly has a trajectory that's bigger than Joe Biden. Yeah, and now looking past the convention, Historically, candidates get a major bump in the polls after their convention. Are we going to see that this year, or was it just too weird this year to maybe see something, or are we going to have to wait and see? It's a good question. We, we always get to find out. That's the nice thing. There will be polls showing us what happened. So, you know, here are the arguments on both sides. Um, why would there not be a bounce? Well, uh, bounces have generally been declining over the years. Conventions have had less and less of an impact because they've been more predictable. So there's, there's nothing new. There's not new information that 
gets revealed to voters that might push them in a different direction than they were headed before the convention. Viewership for the convention has been declining over the years. They've gotten more boring and predictable. There, there aren't big decisions to be made. You know, there, most of what's gonna happen is known in advance. And so it's less enticing to viewers and I think has less in the way of surprise to change their views. So, and, and people are more attached to their parties. Partisanship is stronger in 2020 than it was in 2000, stronger than it was in the 90s or back to the 80s. And so over time, people have settled into their partisan camps and that should dampen the effects. I think other reasons to think the effects might be small. Uh, one is that the Republican convention is happening right away. There's, there's no space between them. So if there was any goodwill or honeymoon that came off this convention, it's gonna last about 12 hours or 24 hours. Biden's getting some great coverage today, but then we're gonna start talking about the Postal Service, the hearings in Congress. Uh, Trump is already gonna be making news about his convention starting on Monday, and this convention will be not a front page story. <laughs> not forgotten, but really low in terms of public priorities. So it just doesn't get the sustained attention that it would have had if it had been back in July when it was originally scheduled. Uh, where well, there would have been a little time for them to milk it before we went to the Olympics and then to the Republican convention. The other thing that's gonna dampen it this year is Donald Trump and Joe Biden. They are such well-known public figures, especially Trump. Everyone has an opinion about the guy. Uh, his approval ratings have not really budged during his time in office, despite a pretty tumultuous presidency that involved an impeachment and a lot of personnel changes and controversies and the Mueller report and all of that, really the public has not budged in what they think about him much, even during the pandemic, just a very slight tailing off of a few percentage points in his approval ratings. So I don't think there's a lot of room for the public to move. And Biden is sailing so far ahead in the polls right now, it's hard to see how he could grow that much more. I mean, it, you know, to be six or seven, eight points ahead nationally and in swing states is pretty good to try to stretch that out to nine or 10 seems unlikely. So I, I, for that reason, I might think that the Republican convention, if they do it as well as the Democrats did, might get a little more of a bounce because there's room for Trump to grow back a little bit the way he's trailing Biden. And there won't be a Democratic convention right afterwards to kind of steal the show that Republicans will get to milk it a little bit. You know, the, the viewership apparently on television was down this year, and that's part of a long-term trend. Um, but I think a lot of people are watching online and streaming and we'll see clips after the fact that are shared on social media or news sites. So it's hard to say how many people actually saw parts of the convention, but the coverage I think was pretty positive and it was pretty enjoyable to watch because it was so slickly produced. So I think that that will have some positive effects for Democrats and if, you know, if there are remaining Democrats who are still not, or progressives or others who are still not sure if they're gonna go for Biden, the convention I think will help bring that coalition even more tightly together. So at, at best, I think small positive bounce for the Democrats, maybe they get a point if you can even measure that in surveys, um, but the Republicans, if they can pull it together, maybe have a, a little bigger opportunity for a, a bounce following their convention. You mentioned the national polls right now, and Biden is ahead in essentially all of them. Does that mean anything right now? I think it does. You know, it's a different environment than in 2016. Yeah, 
for so let me just enumerate some of the ways. So one is that Biden's lead has been sizable and durable, going back to really the end of the Democratic nomination in March and the beginning of the pandemic. His lead has been significant and really unfaltering. And that's true both in the national polls and in the state polls. And we just have not seen that in previous elections where there's such stability and such a big gap between the candidates, especially when the, the trailing candidate is the incumbent. Sometimes incumbents are well ahead. You know, they're in a very strong position. Someone like um, maybe Bill Clinton in 1996, who had a pretty easy reelection. He was ahead during most of that campaign. Uh, here, Trump is the incumbent. Incumbents usually get the benefit of the doubt, but he's trailing and it's just been so consistent for the last four or five months, and now there are only two and a half months left. Uh, so I think it really is significant. Now it's not election day, and it's not a prediction of election day. These are polls that ask people, essentially, if the election were to happen today, what would you do? So it's a snapshot. It's not a forecast of their behavior. And we know from 2016, there was some late breaking movement towards Trump right at the end of the campaign. Uh, but Biden is in a very strong position. He's ahead in all of the battleground states. He is competitive in states that didn't look like battlegrounds a year ago, places like Texas, Georgia, uh, I don't know, Arizona. There, you know, there are thoughts of Iowa or South Carolina maybe being in the mix. And when you're talking about that, you know, Democrats are really on the offensive and, and Trump will be lucky to kind of hold together this coalition. I, I do think the polls are, are putting Biden in a very strong position. Um, something is going to have to change in the narrative of this campaign if Trump is going to claw his way back in. Yeah, and I want to I want to hear your take on this, especially as a as someone who works with polls in the election research center um, that I know and trust. I hear from you know the the five thirty eight political podcast. You hear Galen Druk. And Nate Silver say, like, oh, Texas is in play. Georgia might be in play. Kansas, maybe. Has Texas changed enough since 2016 for it to be possibly in play for the presidential campaign? Texas is changing quickly. Uh, a lot of that is demographics, obviously the growth of the Hispanic population, but also the turnout of Hispanic voters has been increasing. Hispanics have been a sizable part of the state for a while but they've been punching below their weight. That's true nationally. Hispanics are not voting at the same levels as African-Americans, let alone non-Hispanic whites. Uh, but Texas is getting there quickly. You know, Texas has a stereotype as a blood red state, you know, rock rib conservative. It's the sort of the, the biggest state that, Dem that Republicans win in the electoral college. And that, I guess that's been mostly true since about the 1990s when I think the last statewide Democrat lost office. Uh, but the truth is, Texas is a lot of big cities. It is huge urban areas like Dallas and Houston, which are just these monstrous metropolises and are pretty Democrat. They all have Democratic mayors and are very racially and ethnically diverse. And they are driving where Texas is going. I don't know if this is the year that it finally becomes a real toss-up state, but wow, it's close. And when you've got a Republican who's in as much trouble as Trump, he's bringing states into the mix that normally wouldn't be. If this were a 50-50 election, Texas would not be in the discussion and places like Wisconsin and uh, Michigan would be. But right now, Wisconsin and Michigan are <laughs> more on Biden's side and that's, that's bringing some new states 
I think, into the spotlight. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. There are occasionally these states that just pop in and then pop back out of a party's, you know, opportunity. Uh, Indiana is a really good example of a, a pretty Republican state. As the Midwest goes, it's one of the redder states. Hadn't voted for a Democrat in a very long time. And then in 2008, went for Barack Obama. Like, really amazingly, that was the, you know, you, th you think of students applying to colleges and they have their, their safety schools and then the place they think they're probably going to end up and then a reach. Indiana would have been a reach school <laughs> for the Obama campaign in 2008, uh, but they won it. And then in 2012, they lost it. And it's probably not coming back to the Democrats anytime soon, including not this year. So once in a while, there are these kind of confluences of demographics and issues and who the candidates are. And it may be that Texas with its demographics with the terrible experience it's having with the pandemic in recent weeks and with, I, th I think, Trump's trouble with his own party there, that, um, yeah, I think Texas really is in the mix, at least for now. Fair enough. Kind of turning back to looking at the convention and looking at the coalition that Biden is trying to build among Democrats, it seems to be much more united than it was in 2016 especially going into the convention and especially with all the different former primary candidates appearing and speaking really glowingly about Biden. Is that going to, is this unity that the party, that the Democrats have been able to foster so far, is that going to make a major difference this year um, in comparison to 2016? Yes, I, I think that's a major difference this year. And so why is this happening? Well, the, the Democrats' nomination didn't run right to the end of the season the way it did in 2016. I mean, Clinton and Sanders were duking it out until June, and there was question about the superdelegates and what would happen, and a lot of Sanders supporters held out and didn't want to vote for Clinton. Uh, but this year, the nomination was wrapped up in March-ish or early April, I guess after the Wisconsin primary is officially when Sanders got out. And Sanders is on board and his voters are on board. In, in our Elections Research Center surveys, we've done one in February and one in July, August, people who said they were going to vote for Harris or Warren or Sanders or other more, maybe more progressive Democrats in the primaries, 90% of them are saying they're backing Biden. And that, that's all that Biden gets of his own voters from the primaries, about 90%. So that's a high level of unity. So I, I think part of the Democrats' ability to pull everyone together this year is that the, the uh, nomination process was just less fraught and ended so much earlier. The other part of it is the uniform dislike and anger at Donald Trump. You know, Democrats and progressives of all stripes so want to defeat him that they are willing to take Joe Biden as the vehicle for that. And, and I think his promise to be a transitional candidate. So, you know, it, that's different from 2016 when as a country we were finishing eight years of a Democratic president. Democrats were pretty happy with Barack Obama, Republicans very much not. They were eager to get him out of office. And I think a lot of progressives were thinking we've done well under Obama, but you know, what should we be reaching for under the next president? We should not be satisfied with retreating to a more establishment candidate like Hillary Clinton. We ought to be trying to expand the Affordable Care Act to something bigger. 
or to change the immigration policies beyond DACA to something more inclusive or expansive. Um, so I, th I think the, the goals and what, what reservation level people were willing to accept on the Democratic side was different. Now, most Democrats are just happy to have <laughs> Trump go. <laughs> and, uh, and they're gonna get some of the policy things they want, but it's not the number one concern. So I, I do think the environment really is different and Democrats are more unified. There's also not going to be, by the way, a Jill Stein kind of progressive candidate on the ballot in most states, probably not a Kanye West in most states. So some of those minor party candidates that peeled off some votes of either progressives or people who were discontent and uh, maybe otherwise would have voted for the Democrat, those opportunities aren't gonna be there in the same way this year. And so I think Biden has a chance not just to win the popular vote in some states, but actually win a majority of it, which Trump did not do in most swing states in 2016. Yeah, fair enough. And Kanye West, just a funny fun fact, the Wisconsin Election Commission, I think just yesterday threw out his nom forms um, because they were they were turned in late, I guess is the story that they're going with. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast on Kanye West <laughs> and third party candidates. You know, I, I don't think we know what his motivation is exactly um he may not have a single motivation he's got lots of resources and that should help him get on the ballot he's got all the money in the world which helped people like ross perot get on the ballot in the 1990s but it's so amateur and he's doing it so late it's august of an election year uh and not always hiring good people to help him do this from one state to the next just missing one deadline after another or submitting petitions that don't get accepted so he'll, he'll, he's going to be part of the story in november i suppose because he's going to be on some ballots but um not wisconsin so the pattern's going to be different here kind of turning now to something we haven't talked about yet and this is the first podcast we are recording now that we have a vice president a vice presidential pick um that is kamala harris senator from california just off the top of your head, what do you make of this pick? Well, she was always the most likely pick. Uh, she was, first of all, she's female and Biden had pledged early in the debates that he was gonna pick a female running mate. So that keeps her in the mix. She's a person of color and there was a lot of pressure on Biden and I think desire on Biden's part to pick a non-white running mate. Uh, so that's there. She was also an also ran. You know, she sought the nomination. So she expressed a desire and wanting to be in the White House. It's pretty common for presidential candidates to pick somebody from the group that ran against them. Uh, Ronald Reagan did that with George Bush. Barack Obama did that with Joe Biden. That's how Joe Biden is set to potentially become president <laughs> next year is he ran for president a few times. And one of those times, the guy who got the nomination selected him as a running mate. So it's not surprising that that he that Biden would turn to the pool of people who ran with him uh, for a running mate, and only a few of those candidates were female. I think Elizabeth Warren was, in the end, not an option because of her age. She is also in the, you know, the kind of uh, generational cohort that he and Donald Trump are in, and if. Biden wanted to appeal to young voters in his party and be a bridge to a future version of that party. He's going to need to pick a younger running mate. It's really funny that somebody who's 55 is now considered young, but in the scheme of things, that's where Harris is. Um, you know, the other women in the mix, I think Amy Klobuchar bowed out so early and was really done in 
by her record as a prosecutor in the Twin Cities after the George Floyd killing there, uh, that really knocked her out of the mix. Uh, people like Tulsi Gabbard and Marianne Williamson were never gonna be seriously considered. So Harris I thought was most likely, there were some other really interesting women of color on, you know, in the group of finalists. Um, but I, I don't think people were surprised by Kamala Harris. She's got a, you know, some traits or ways of doing things that are different than Biden's. And I think compliment him in some nice ways. She, I think is more spontaneous and fun on the campaign trail than him. She's got more energy than him. Um, there's, when, when she's doing well in a debate or a speech, there's a kind of spark in her style that Biden doesn't show in the same way. He's, he's just got a different approach uh, in those things. So um, her background, really interesting. You know, the, the immigrant connection, being a child of an Indian and Jamaican parent, I think help tell, helps tell the story that the Democrats wanna offer about welcoming immigrants and offering a different approach than the Trump administration. She, was, she was, would have been thoroughly vetted. So if there's anything in her background that might be embarrassing or challenging, Biden would know about that. And, and apparently there wasn't anything like that. So uh, it didn't surprise me. It struck me as a pretty safe, reasonable pick. There has been, though, some slight pushback from some of the progressive or leftist movements in the party against Harris because of her time. Uh, when she was a California prosecutor in San Francisco... Is that going to be something that is going to trail Kamala Harris into October, into November? Or do you think that some of the more unity messaging that the party is kind of pushing out is going to kind of push past that or break through that kind of veil? I don't think her record as a prosecutor is going to dog her much in the general election. It did in the primaries. And I think that caused some reluctance on the part of progressive voters to support her, even if they otherwise liked her message and style, uh, her background just gave them some pause. But I think in the general election, you've got a different kind of voter who's participating. And there are going to be so many other issues on the table. I mean, the pandemic and the government's response to it and the economy are going to be right at the top. And I, I just don't think her record is going to get much attention. Maybe the Trump campaign will find a particularly embarrassing case or troublesome case in her past and make an ad out of that. I mean, that, that sometimes happens. There's kind of a Willie Horton version of that, or, you know, w whenever we have a race for Supreme Court in Wisconsin, there's always some decision that the judge or prosecutor made, the person who's a candidate for the Supreme Court made in the past, and that turns into an ad. So there might be something like that. But um, I think actually the Trump campaign is going to try to portray Biden and especially Harris as radicals who are connected to really unsavory elements in American society, who want to defund the police, who want to impose socialism. Um, and it's, it's hard to make that argument and argue that she was too, too conservative or overly, you know, uh, abuse, she was abusive with her time as a prosecutor, especially among, uh, for people who are accused of crimes and are people of color. So I don't, I don't think the Trump campaign can have it both ways. And if they try, it's going to be such a muddled message that they will be in trouble winning it all. So I, I just don't think it's going to, it's going to have a, not any legs this fall. With the Republicans and their response to uh, Joe Biden picking Kamala Harris, it, 
it almost seemed like that there wasn't a united message on behalf of the Republicans for Kamala Harris or like in response to their pick. Do you think that they were thinking that Joe Biden was going to pick Susan Rice and they just didn't have anything prepared for Kamala Harris or was it just poor planning on the Republicans part? It doesn't make sense to me. You know, the Trump campaign has all the money you could ever want. So there's no shortage of resources to do things. They had no primary, no significant primary opponents. There were a couple of gadflies who caused them trouble, but they really cruised through the nomination process. So they've had months and months to prepare in the way that Obama had months and months and lots of money to prepare in 2012. So you should be ready with ammunition as soon as the running mate is announced. We all knew who the 10 or 12 people being discussed were. So you, as a campaign, should be producing opposition research. The Trump folks did come out with an ad pretty quickly, but I totally agree with you that there's not a clear message. You know, what, what, what is wrong with Kamala Harris? There's not a single thread. And that's gonna be really damning for the Trump campaign if that's how they roll through the whole campaign. Uh, you know, I, I think Trump and his team probably need to simplify and have a message about law and order, about staying the course, about climbing our way out of this pandemic and letting Trump grow the economy back to where it was and trying to avoid the kind of radical ideas that may be coming from a Biden-Harris administration. That could be a simple message and it would fit with the kind of thing he offered in 2016. But picking on all of these different aspects of Harris or Biden, um, you know, it, it just doesn't all fit together. And so this ties back to a, a conversation, you know, the discussion we had a few moments ago, if the Democrats are trying to have it both ways to be moderate and big tent and inclusive and appealing to the average person out on the street, but also to try to satisfy the progressive desires in their party, uh, that makes them a little slippery for the Republicans. Which one of those things are they going to go after? Is Joe Biden a boring establishment centrist politician or is he a radical socialist who's gonna enable people who want to defund the police? You just can't have it both ways and have an effective campaign. So I think the Trump people have, have probably done some soul searching since about the Tulsa rally and um, maybe they will bring it all together next week in the convention. It's not Trump's instinct to stay on a single message. He jumps from idea to idea, um, but maybe his team will be able to focus things and be more effective. I want to ask about the Republican convention. How do you think it's going to go, especially in comparison to how relatively successfully the Democrats pulled off their convention? I'm so curious to see what the Republicans do. Uh, they have the benefit of going second. So they did get to see what worked and what didn't work for the Democrats. So, you know, for the next two days, they ought to be revising things <laughs> to try to learn from that. Uh, so that I give them a little leg up. Um, but I will be surprised if it's as smooth and complete as the Democrats convention. You know, one thing the Democrats or a couple things Democrats have going for them are all of the people they can bring to speak at a convention. There are all of the people in the Democratic establishment, both of the Obama spoke, both of, both of, both of the Clintons spoke, Jimmy Carter spoke. Uh, there are celebrities they brought in, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Kerry Washington and others, you know, musical performers were all part of the convention. And even some 
Republicans. I mean, John McCain is dead, but his family and his legacy made an appearance. And we mentioned John Kasich. So there are just tons of surrogates that the Democrats could feature, uh, plus these everyday uh, people on the street. The Republicans right now don't have that. Uh, you know, the, the elder states people in the Republican Party are the Bushes, George and Jeb. They're not going to be at the convention. Uh, or people who ran for president before, like John Kasich, Mitt Romney, they're not going to be at the convention. Uh, it will, I think it will heavily feature Trump. He would like to apparently make some kind of appearance every night of the four nights. Uh, it will feature his family, as it did four years ago, his sons, his daughters, uh, maybe some of his business associates, maybe some cabinet officials. They could be effective surrogates. Um, maybe you know some members of Congress and a stray governor or two. They just don't have the same kinds of people. So how they fill the time, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. So uh, I, I'm really curious how this is going to come together. It, it was an awkward convention for the Republicans four years ago. Um, but I think in this environment, I'm, I'm just not confident yet that the Republicans have pulled it together to make this happen, but we may be surprised. We didn't know what was going to happen going into the Democratic convention. They, I think they had a, a pretty successful one. Uh, maybe the Republicans will as well, and they will get more leverage from it because they're second, and it will be the last taste in people's mouths after this convention season passes. Yeah, lest we forget Ted Cruz getting booed off the stage at the 2016 Republican National Convention. Yeah, you know, there won't be booze just the way there weren't booze in 20 uh, for the Democrats this year. So they do have that, but I'm not sure Ted Cruz is going to speak. We don't know who's going to speak. You know, that like that information has not been revealed. So um, yeah, so maybe you know, maybe the kind of dissension we saw in 2016 won't appear this way. It won't appear this year in the same way. That could be helpful just the way it was helpful for the Republic for the Democrats. But typically the incumbent party doesn't have dissension. You know, typically the incumbent party is unified behind its president and wants that person for a second term. So that should be what comes through uh, really bright and clear. Yeah, I guess we're just going to have to see. But as we're wrapping up, I kind of want to ask you just a couple more questions, especially one concerning issues with the Postal Service. How are you, or as an analyst, how are you seeing some of the actions that the Trump administration is doing um, to kind of weaken, or it looks like they're trying to weaken the Postal Service. Um, and what are, you, what are you gleaning from some of the backlash, especially from prominent politicians? Yeah, isn't it amazing that the Postal Service is one of the issues in the 2020 campaign? This is not what I thought we'd be talking about even before the pandemic, um, but it actually got a lot of attention during the Democratic convention. Um, so here we are. You know, I think any threat to the Postal Service is a real worry because it is so essential for voting during the pandemic. Uh, the guess, I think, right now is that about half of voters are likely to vote by mail in the general election, maybe more than that. And so the Postal Service has become part of the election infrastructure, really. And uh, they are experiencing delays and they've had budget challenges for a number of years because of the requirement that they that the Postal Service prepay 75 years of retirement benefits for their employees. Uh, and the Postmaster General has 
come under fire for changes he has made in particular uh, wanting to limit overtime to cut costs and so that has meant that not all mail is delivered uh, not delivered in the same timely fashion with the standards that the postal service had before now he's backed off on that and he's going to be called before congress to testify today and um, as we go into the republican convention but that's not the same as undoing the things that the postal service has already done over the last few weeks in terms of you know, moving sorting machines and other, other kinds of changes to the delivery process. I, I worried before the pandemic that our election system was increasingly relying on the Postal Service. Uh, it's an essential service. It's one of the few government agencies that's actually mentioned in the US Constitution, but it is troubled and it's, it's, it's imperfect. I mean, how often have you mailed a letter and it didn't arrive in a timely fashion or You've gotten mail for someone else in your mailbox and had to tell the postal worker, no, this goes to the person down the street. So it's imperfect. Um, and you know, so, so I'm worried about the cutbacks, rollbacks and the politicization of the postal service. But I think I'm more worried just about relying on the postal service so heavily and expecting perfection. Uh, in most states, the deadline for requesting an absentee ballot is so late so close to the election that there's no way that an election official could actually mail that ballot out, get it to the voter, allow the voter to mark the ballot and return it in time. In Wisconsin, the deadline for requesting an absentee ballot is the Thursday before the election. You know, the election's on Tuesday. So there are what, three mailing days, three business days between that and an election day. The Postal Service is saying allow, a, now we should allow a week for delivering the ballot each direction. So this has to be actually two weeks of total time, if not more, for the ballot to go out and come back. A lot of voters are not going to be prepared to think about getting registered, getting their ID if they need it, and requesting the ballot by about October 15th. You know, the debates will still be happening, and but you've got to do that in a lot of states in order to meet the deadline. So uh, I am worried about how the Postal Service is being managed and about its budget, but I, I think my greater worry is just that the election system is depending on the Postal Service to do so much of the work and to do it so perfectly with something that's so important. These are people's ballots. Um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation, I think the last couple of weeks about things like prescriptions that are being delivered by the Postal Service. That's an essential service for a lot of Americans and that's caused a lot of Republicans actually to push back against the Trump administration and against the Postal Service. Um, but the ballot is time sensitive. There's a deadline. And if the ballot isn't cast, the election passes and the person loses their ability to vote. So um, I, I don't think dependence on the Postal Service, at least not with the rules we have now and the structure that we have now, is going to be viable. Yeah, it's definitely pretty scary. And one thing I want to say, especially for our listeners, you don't have to mail back your absentee ballot. Once you receive your ballot, one of the safest ways that you can make sure that it will be counted is drop, dropping it off at a uh, secure deposit box, like at your polling place or wherever, like here in Madison, it's at the city county building. Um, and that is an excellent way to make sure that your ballot gets counted. I totally agree. You know, aside from the Postal Service imperfections, ballots that are sent back by mail get rejected at much higher rates for problems that maybe don't have anything to do with the Postal Service. 
you know, that the ballot has gotten returned too late, that it's missing a voter's signature, that it has, the envelope hasn't been sealed. All of those are grounds for rejection. Uh, nationwide in the 2016 presidential election, about 2% of mail ballots were rejected. And you might say, well, that's pretty good. That means 98% were counted. But that also means if you mailed back your ballot, there's a one in 50 chance that your ballot was rejected. And among young people, I can tell you the rate is higher. Young people make more mistakes and are more likely to miss the deadlines or do all of the things that need to be done. So I think you know receiving the ballot by mail is terrific, but I agree with you. Taking it into a drop box to your clerk's office uh, or some other in-person opportunity is gonna prevent uh, or at least mitigate a lot of those things that trip up voters. Absolutely. We can end on a positive note. Uh, Professor Burden, what can students and all of us all of us citizens do to preserve the integrity of the electoral process in the coming months as we move towards November? Well, I think there are a lot of things. For young people who are willing and able, serving as a poll worker would be really helpful. Uh, there's a real shortage of poll workers generally in the United States. A, a presidential election in a pre-pandemic time requires about a million people nationwide to sign up as poll workers. In Wisconsin, it typically takes about 30,000 people as poll workers. This is a tremendous recruiting challenge. And because of the pandemic, lots of poll workers, especially the older poll workers who dominate the ranks of the poll workers, more than half of poll workers are over age 60. Uh, they have been reluctant to serve for reasons we can totally understand. Uh, and that young people can help fill the ranks. You don't have to work for a whole day. Wisconsin and a lot of states will allow you to work a partial shift. Uh, you actually get paid to do it. It's a really rewarding experience. I think poll workers are pretty safe in terms of public health concerns. They have PPE and lots of things that states weren't so good at being able to provide back in April and May when this came upon us so quickly. So serving as a poll worker, I think it's a, it's a great experience and a, a really nice way to serve the election. The other thing I would ask students and everyone to do is to exercise patience uh, and not rush to judgment on election night. We are not likely to know clear results in many states on election night. Election night returns were never official returns in the past. And, and now we're gonna even know less about them on election night. And the ballots that get counted later are sometimes different in their political makeup than the ones that get counted right away. So results that look like they're favoring one party on election night can shift afterwards. Uh, this happened, if you remember the Arizona Senate election a few years ago between Kristen Simina and um, Martha McSally. McSally was ahead on election night, but because Arizona had so many mail ballots and so many other ballots that get counted later, provisional ballots and so on, uh, with each day, the results went more and more towards cinema's direction. And by the end, she was declared the winner. Uh, and that was true in a lot of places in the 2018 midterm elections. The late ballots often favor the Democrats more than the early ballots do. So let's just exercise patience, not expect perfection on election night. Accuracy is better than speed. I wanna know the results too. We've all been at this election game for uh, you know, about two years really, and uh, are eager to see the results but I, I think we're just gonna to have to believe in the integrity of the system and wait it out and not let politicians try to intervene to stop a process or prematurely declare victory. We've just gotta wait for those votes to come in and for election officials to do their work. And um, there's, not, there's not a hurry to do that. We've got you know, 
in, in the April primary in Wisconsin, the deadline for the tabulation of the ballots got extended by six days. No one was hurt. It was fine. <laughs> and so uh, we can do that in November as well. I could not emphasize that last point enough. It is going to be so crucial that we exercise patience. Um, and exactly what you said, no harm, no foul here in Wisconsin in the week that it took to tabulate votes. It ended up working smoothly. And I hope that it works that way this November. Yeah, there's going to be a, a problem somewhere. Every election, you know, it's a massive undertaking to create polling centers, to hire poll workers, to collect the ballots now with so many of them being distributed by mail. Uh, somewhere in our state and in every state, there's going to be a problem with ballots that get misplaced or errors that election officials make or a website that goes down. Let's not jump to conclusions. It's when a, when a website goes down or there's a number that doesn't make sense, it's usually an error or incompetence or just some kind of small thing that's not malicious. Um, we just got to let the process play out and um, ultimately the voters' views will determine what happens. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Burden. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you again. Oh, glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on again. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.